Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today my guest is a return guest. I'm delighted to have Udi Ledegor, who is the CMO of Gong back. Today we're going to be talking about sales and marketing and CS alignment. We're going to be talking about how do you keep your short-term fears at bay and what do you need to do in order to respond successfully uh, in a tough time. You know, the market is getting tight. Uh, recession is around the corner. World War Three. who knows? Uh, we've got inflation. We've got problems with recruiting, retaining. You know, you need to make sure that you're feeling calm. And now is not the time for your ego. Now is the time for you to start cooperating. So, Udi, first of all, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, my pleasure. W- would you mind just telling the folks uh, who haven't heard of you before what your uh, history is and what Gong does? Because I think it's, it's an area of the market that will probably be new to many people outside of the tech space. Um, certainly the people that I deal with. Happy to give that background. So personally, uh, my name is Udi. I was born and raised in Israel. And I have been living in the San Francisco Bay Area for the last four years with my husband and our three children. I'm the chief marketing officer at Gong for the past six plus years. And this is the fifth marketing team that I've had the pleasure of building. So things are pretty, pretty good. (laughs) Excellent. What does Gong do? Gong is the reality platform for customer-facing teams. What that means is that we capture all the customer conversations, whether they're on Zoom calls or phone calls or emails or, or chats. We use AI and machine learning to analyze all those conversations, and then we surface insights that are actionable to the sales professionals and their leaders, telling them where to focus their coaching, how to close more deals, which deals need their attention, and how to more accurately forecast their sales quarter. Right. So I'm really interested in how that level of insight is then being fed back into product development, marketing, and the customer success function, because that's the conversation between seller and buyer. But I'd love to understand how you're using that to inform and improve the entire experience of the customer through that journey. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could talk about this stuff for hours. This is super exciting. So uh, I'll start with marketing selfishly. You know, when, uh, when we, we try to evaluate things like what our customers are talking about and which marketing campaigns are landing, uh, if I wanted to know which of our customers have listened to this podcast once it goes live, all I have to do is set up a tracker with the name of the podcast or your name. And every time a customer says to a salesperson, oh, I heard your CMO on that Marcus podcast, that'll show up on my dashboard. So I know how many customers have listened to this podcast and this, this stuff actually works. Now that's, that's understanding marketing efficacy. Sometimes I wanna understand messaging and product marketing efficacy. So let's say we rolled out new messaging for the sales team, which we do every few months as, as most product marketing teams do. We have a dashboard within Gong that shows us how many of the salespeople are using it at the resolution of which teams and which salespeople on which calls are using the new messaging and which ones are still using the old ones. So we can go ask them, hey, is there something that's not working for you with the new messaging? Why aren't you using this stuff? And the real mind-blowing part is that those who use the new messaging, we can also tell instantly how that's changing their win rates. So if the new messaging, which is the case that we hope for, is improving their win rates by, say, 25%, that'll show up on the dashboard, and I can use that as social proof 
to go to the reps that have not adopted the new messaging yet and say, you must be crazy not using this because your peers are winning more deals because they are. Okay, and now that is fantastic. I'm really interested in how sales is then able to use it to push back on management and leadership to get them to stop focusing on shitty lagging indicators that are utterly useless as far as the salesperson is concerned in helping them do their job better and help to uncover the patterns of where the leading indicators are. The important factors around, for example, language, relationships, timing, business acumen, because in my experience, that stuff in most organizations that don't have access to these insights, the overemphasis is on all the wrong things styles, uh, in the first meetings, proposals, demos, quotes, all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't move the needle forward and doesn't help salespeople uh, sell more. Right. So when, when everything is going well, we typically don't care about activities measured, like how many dials, how many emails sent. That's when everything is going well. When, when things are not always going well, and given a large enough team, especially at times like this, there's always going to be pockets of the business where we want to do better. Then we start digging into both how much of these activities are they doing and what is the nature of the activities? So some of the things that, that we notice, you know, we have um, especially early career salespeople and sales development folks that come in from a variety of walks of life and not all of them have a lot of business experience. And we can easily tell based on their calls uh, when they don't have the right background to speak with senior sales leaders that they're selling to and they don't understand what they're selling and who they're selling to. I'm, I'm exaggerating just a little bit because obviously they go through onboarding and training, but you can easily tell apart the ones that know what they're doing and the ones that need extra focus just by listening to some of those calls. Now, you were talking about getting um, feedback back to management and other departments. So at times like this, it's really important to forward the voice of the customer to folks in product when customers are saying, hey, if you only had this functionality, I would probably buy for you now from you now, but without this, I'm going to put this off for next quarter. So this is an excellent opportunity for a salesperson to send that to product and say, hey, I need this piece in the product to be able to sell more product right now. Or maybe our pricing is not up to date with what's happening in the market right now. Again, using Gong, you can capture all that feedback in the direct voice of the customer and send that over to management to say, hey, you know, we should relook at pricing and packaging right now because what we're trying to sell is not landing. This is really interesting. I, I interviewed a lady called Amy Brown, who is founder of a company called Authentics. And what they do is they listen to over 10 billion calls a year in the American health system. And so it's all their call center. And what's really fascinating is just how much information of uh, useful, actionable insight is buried in the small data, but not in the big data. And I think the obsession with big data is a massive distraction. And um, at the same time as we've seen this explosion in big data, we've also seen the explosion in every form of MarTech, sales tech, sales enablement, and uh, every vendor who uh, latches on to you know, the teeth of venture capital and private equity money, because it's been, you know, it's been massively successful the last 10, 12 years. Things have changed, and you can't continue to grow at the scale that you used to be able to because the money's no longer cheap and free. Now it's expensive and in short supply. In fact, I think I saw a study today, 70% drop in VC investment in the last two quarters. That um, sounds about right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so very different marketplace. You've got to make a profit now. 
you can't take 18 months. And you've seen this massive explosion in all these technologies, but we've seen average quota attainment plummet from an average of 65% to below 40 I think we're going to continue seeing that for a while because because here's what's happening and everyone who's been trying to sell in the market in the last six months has has seen the same thing. Customers are now focusing on the absolute must-haves and are postponing all purchases of nice-to-have products. And that includes hiring on payroll and that includes software, of course. Uh, We're seeing CFOs uh, do audits of all their unutilized seats, even if they... Even if they are keeping the software, they want to make sure that they don't have any underutilized seats and they might be letting some people go so they can return those seats. They might have bought seats expecting future growth, which might not be happening this year. So they want to return those seats and they probably want to renegotiate terms for the seats that they still want to keep using. So this forces everyone in go-to-market and product included to focus on how can we make our product an absolute must-have that customers have to be crazy not to use it right now. And there's a whole series of things that 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 entails. What I'm particularly concerned about is that so many of the sellers are not getting the coverage that they need within accounts because uh, in an enterprise, I don't know what it's like with Gong, but I'm guessing at the level that you sell at, there's probably eight to 16 influencers, evaluators, and decision makers who need to be involved. But if you look at the actual coverage, it's typically around one to two in most enterprise accounts. So what I'm really interested in is how you have been able to create that alignment and that continuity where everyone knows what they are responsible for and what their part to play in the overall job to be done for the customer to get the outcome that they want. Because I, I think that's major part of why you guys have been so successful. Yes. So, so Marcus, you, you, you kind of hit on a really important topic for salespeople and a, and a reason that often deals don't close, or even if they do do close, they tend to churn because we were not speaking to power from from the get-go. And so there there are a few things that we do here. One thing, uh, I think it starts with marketing coverage, right? We want to make sure that our marketing programs, the ABM programs, the social media advertising, the events that we put on, that they invite and include all the buying committee members at any given enterprise. So if There might be 14 influencers uh, in a large enterprise. They all have to be invited to these events and they all have to see our ads and they all have to download our content. And we make sure that we we cover them with our marketing programs. Next, uh, we have a team of ISRs or inside sales reps who help our enterprise AE, our field AEs, by engaging with those influencers to make sure that none of them are left behind. And that's a crucial part of managing the deal cycle. And we know this, that for large enterprises, The more people you're involved in, typically, the higher chances are of closing the deal and growing that customer. And then finally, when we want to measure who is actually involved in the deal and and shameless self-plug here, we use Gong for this because this is almost impossible to track manually. But one of the, the early pieces that we put in our deal inspection module in Gong was to see Are you at power? How many influencers are involved from your buying committee? How many people from Gong are involved? We know that if sometimes you want to speak to their CRO, you're going to have to get your CRO involved. So you can easily see if those those personas have been involved already. And if not, you will get 
suggestions for who else needs to be involved. Um, another tactical example, you know, if you're uh, forecasting this deal to close in the quarter and we're two weeks before the quarter end and Gong can see that you're not talking to procurement or legal or IT yet, that deal is probably not going to close based on your past wins. So we will nudge you to say, hey, you haven't heard from procurement in the last three weeks. It's time to get them engaged or this deal is not going to close. So this is really interesting because what I'm observing is the tech stack has now become so sophisticated and so complex. I mean, in my tiny, pokey little business with me and my wife, I'm using probably upwards of 25 apps. And she's using different set of apps as well. So there could easily be 40 in a two-person business with some crossover. And in an, a bank, you're talking eight, 900 apps. Uh, in yeah. an enterprise, we're talking hundreds of apps and all these different things need to play nicely together. And I am really, really curious. Do you think that there is much of a future for uh, lone wolf software vendors? Or are they going to have to now start really playing nicely in ecosystems, uh, really focusing on engaging much more effectively with partners because they have a much broader and deeper exposure within the business? That, that, that's a fascinating topic. And I think that there's always going to be a tension between best of breed point solutions and end-to-end -end consolidated solutions. And I'll, I'll shed a little bit of light on, on what I'm talking about. So customers don't care about software architecture and don't care about integrations. They want to solve a problem. They want to get a job done. And they want to get it done in the most cost-efficient, streamlined way that they can do it. Now, let's say they have a, a burning problem and none of the large software suites that they're using, let's say they're, they're either a Microsoft shop or a Google shop, and they, they have all these products from, from a single vendor, but none of them solve this annoying point solution that they're looking for. So they will go and buy a point solution that might not integrate with anything and not play nicely with anything initially to solve that problem. And we see that all the time. A lot of companies get their start by solving... <laughs> painful problem that a lot of people have and they're willing to pay for it. And so that's how many uh, solutions start. When you get to times like this, when CFOs are starting to pinch their purses and say, no, you can't use 900 software products. We're going to cut that number by half. We're going to stick with the must-haves. Then a couple of things will happen. Some of those point solutions will end up getting acquired by the large companies. And we, we see companies like Salesforce buying everything under the sun because they want analytics. So they bought Tableau and they want messaging. So they bought Slack and they wanted marketing automation. They bought Pardot. They want C CPQ. They bought Steelbrick. And they're buying all these point solutions and making them play nice to an extent within their larger platform. And another way of, of doing things is starting with a point solution and then bringing under your umbrella more and more pieces of what your customer is looking for and building out those in integrations. That's the approach that companies like Gong are taking. We started with conversation intelligence many years ago. We've since added coaching and deal inspection and revenue intelligence and forecasting. And now next month, we're launching a host of exciting new products and partnerships. And all of this is going under the reality platform umbrella. And we now have well over 100 partnerships and working integrations under the Gong Collective. And that is why we're quickly becoming recognized as the most valuable platform by many of our customer-facing teams who are using Gong. And so those are kind of the two main 
approaches to that. But I would say that a point solution will stay a point solution only up to a point, pun intended, before it either has to grow a full umbrella and provide a broader solution or end up getting acquired and, and integrated into a bigger solution because there are only so many solutions any IT team can manage. I think there's going to be a really interesting shift, and I'd love your take on this because you've probably got much better handled than uh, little me. I, I get the feeling that a large proportion of sales roles will just disappear because they will be replaced by good marketing, intelligent websites. And in all honesty, many of them could be replaced by Alexa or Siri because they do little more than act as a talking brochure. And in many cases, they're actually a detriment to the business because when you remove them, sales go up. And the only thing they actually added was discounts. Um, so that's not good for the top bottom line. So I think the market is likely to shift. And about, I, I think, 30, 40% of those sales jobs in this cull will disappear. I think another 30, 40% will go into the channel, strategic alliances, ecosystems. Um, and then 20% will remain direct. And those will be portfolio sellers. They will be people who understand the complex mechanics of how businesses operate and what they solve as business problems, messy, wicked problems. Now, I'm really curious whether or not that's the way you think the market's going to go or there's, uh, there's something else uh, that I'm missing. No, I, I think I think you understand it very well. So we're already seeing, if, if you look at the consumer world where things tend to move much faster than the business-to-business -business world, in the consumer world, we're now buying things online that only 10 or 15 years ago, we never would have imagined that we would have bought. People are buying cars online. Houses. Houses. We're, we're booking our vacations without a travel agent. We're buying insurance without an insurance agent. We've cut out the middle person and we're, we're doing all this stuff online. Um, I'm booking my flights while I'm on an Uber using one app to connect to another and, and make sure I get a streamlined experience. I, I changed my flight in less than 30 seconds. I'm not even kidding you because I, I finished a meeting early and I, I wanted to jump on an earlier flight to get back home for, for story time with my kids. I changed my flight in less than 30 seconds without speaking to a human. I picked my seat. I knew where I was going to sit. I knew it's not going to cost me anything. I mean, th that's mind-blowing. Now, wh what is the lesson out of all of this? Where there are very straightforward needs from customer and very straightforward actions by the seller, it's going to go into self-service, right? There, if, if there's nothing you can customize, if you don't want to speak to anyone, if, as you said, the seller is not adding any value, why not just do it self-service? This is what customers are expecting. Companies like Amazon have spoiled us to expect a perfect online experience with impeccable service and just getting things done quickly. And I want it on my doorstep by tomorrow at 10 a.m. Now, in the B2B world, it is slowly catching up. So we're already seeing a lot of product-led companies, right? If you want a simple product that has little customization, the use case is very straightforward, the deployment is very straightforward, you just want to click a few buttons and get started now, right? Look at companies like Google. They're selling relatively complex products with little or no customization. You don't need to speak to a human. You just install it. If you've ever installed an email server and, and assigned users, you know how easy it can be these days. It's, it's pretty simple. You don't need people to help you do that. Now, where salespeople still have value is where there is personalization, customization, bespoke deployments. Uh, customers need 
consulting on what they actually need. They don't know what they need. If, if, if you know what car model you want, what color you want the leather and what color you want the steering wheel, you don't need a salesperson to help you with that. But if you're not even sure, oh, do I need the forecasting product? And what about the contact database? And how's that going to work with my sales engagement solution? There, you might actually benefit from speaking to a salesperson. And, and I'll, I'll end on one final thought on this. The problem is, if you look at studies like one that Salesforce published a couple of years ago, and there have been a few follow-ups that have confirmed similar numbers, even the, the enterprise B2B salespeople report that they spend only 30% of their time actually doing this high-value work of consulting and helping their customers. 70% of their time is manually entering information into their CRM and sitting in boring meetings, internal meetings, not customer-facing meetings, all day long. And I think tools like Gong and others are going to rid the salespeople of all that low value work so that they can spend more value doing what they're intended to do and actually bring more value to their business and their customers. Okay. So I'm with you hundred percent. I, I love what technology could help businesses to do, but what I've seen is the way people buy technology mm-hmm. and the way people often sell technology is incredibly lazy. It doesn't involve the people who have to live with the damn thing. And it doesn't deliver the outcome that the person who's meant to live with it needs because, I mean, CRM, let's take CRM for an example. I think the last study I read was 88% of CRM implementations are deemed a failure by the users for the outcomes that they were promised. Now, it is the case. You'll just have spent a lot of money on something that isn't going to deliver the outcome. People will work around it. So you'll be paying twice and you'll have added inefficiency to your organization. And I've seen this happen because people are layering technology upon technology to try and solve the symptom instead of take a bit of time to think about the cause. Because if you want to eliminate 95% of management problems, hire better. If you hire the best people and you create the conditions for them to perform at their optimal level, then you will do remarkably well and in a known and certain way. Um, But I think what seems to have happened is people have decided it's easier to buy a piece of tech to try and solve the symptom than actually put the heavy lifting in. And I'm really curious about the kind of insights this is giving you about what makes a great, a truly great salesperson. Because in terms of informing the recruitment process, and the hiring and onboarding process, I imagine that those insights could be incredibly potent, particularly at a time where there are two uh, vacancies for every applicant. Yeah, so I I completely agree that the human element is what's going to determine if a sales organization succeeds or not. They can get all the fancy software in the world. It can move things 15, 20% one way or another. It's not going to replace a bad sales team. So, so here's here's the thing that we've seen work really well. First, I think the, the best salespeople in the world are just masters of human psychology and, and almost social engineering, but not in a sinister way. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Um, one of the studies that we ran, we compared the traits of men and women who are selling and saw what they do differently and what seems to be working to close more deals. And unsurprisingly, we found that one gender is systematically better at listening, is systematically better at not interrupting, which makes their customers feel heard, 
and is systematically better at asking the right questions. Uh, can you give a wild guess who that gender might be? Mm, it's men. <laughs> no, you're wrong. There, oh, no, uh, I, I can't women, believe I'm wrong. I, I feel cheated, David. It is, it is women, of course. They, they literally do almost every single thing that a top salesperson is expected to do better than other genders. And it's still surprising that they're a minority within the sales world. There seems to be the, this old-fashioned notion that the salesperson has to be this slick person with, with you know, greasy hair selling you a used car. But, but actually, women do all this stuff way, way better. And it's wonderful to see them uh, grow in their share of, 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 of salespeople in the world. Uh, so that's, that's one really, really important quality. And of course, for all the men out there, all hope is not lost. We can learn a lot of the stuff. We can learn a lot of the stuff. I'll give you a simple example. I talk a lot and I talk quickly, as you might have noticed. And most salespeople do that, both men and women. When they get started, when, when you start measuring salespeople's talk time, they're usually shocked. If you were to ask the average salesperson, so how much of a, of a sales call do you think you dominate with your own speech? And they'll say, oh, maybe 40, 50%. And then they start recording it using a tool like Gong and they see, oh shit, I'm talking 85% of the time. These are real numbers. This is typical for, for budding salespeople. And then they, they see that and they go, oh shit. And they see that the recommendation is to actually lower their talk time to below 50%. They want to be at about 46%. An easy way to remember that is that your, your mother was right when she said you have two ears and one mouth, use them in that ratio. That's about the right ratio or the golden ratio for, for salespeople. And as they start measuring that call after call after call, they become more cognizant of, oh, am I speaking too much? I better shut up more. And they see that number go down from the 85% to 46%. So a really important measure of whether someone will make progress is their uh, level of self-awareness uh, and their willingness to accept data and the information that they're being given and then act on it and turning it into knowledge and wisdom. Is that a fair uh, observation of top performance? 100%. And I don't think that's limited to salespeople these days. I think the days of professions that remain constant for years or decades are all but gone. In the past, you could give examples of like the bread bakers, maybe nothing changed there, but even there, there's new technology and there's gluten-free and there's automation and there's all these fancy bread. Nothing has changed and nothing has remained constant anymore. And if, if our parents' generation could work for 30 years in the same place, uh, without increasing their skill set or, or changing what they do, that's no longer an option in the vast majority of, of jobs today. And I think the, the audience listening to us today is probably working at a job that's either going to radically change in the next three to five years or might not even exist. And you have to be cognizant of that. And I think the the key the key term here to both succeeding in your current job but also in your lifelong career is constantly being adaptable, being a lifelong learner. And as one of my college professors called it, how do you remain employable? And remaining employable means that school isn't out when you graduated from, from, from college or university. School is never out. And I see people much older than me succeeding in their career and moving super fast just by constantly being a learner and, and getting information about their craft and about their 
industry, what's happening, what's changing, what are others doing, what should I be looking out for? And by doing that, you're going to do better at your current job and you're going to get more opportunities for your next job. And if this job actually dissolves at some point, you've already accumulated so much knowledge that you're going to be able to more easily transfer to something else. And this, again, I think is uh, something that you see in top performers. I've been very fortunate through the podcast in the last month to interview a couple of high performance coaches who deal with top 1% performers globally and help them get better with the head of recruitment for the uh, the UK uh, special forces so SAS and SBS and the 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 themes that run through uh, are really good levels of self awareness a discipline and a commitment to do what is necessary even when you hate doing it. You don't have to have a boot on your neck and you never make excuses, you just do it. You're constantly practicing the basics and the fundamentals and you're always trying to incrementally improve those and that never stops. The learning is a, an obsession. You have range. You've got range of interest. Uh, you've got broad business acumen. Uh, you uh, understand about other industries and sectors. You have in, uh, um, a historical view uh, that goes beyond your lifetime. And you're pr- looking forward beyond your lifetime because that's the world that your business is occupying. A huge amount of humility to realize that so much has been created before you that is way bigger and greater than anything I'll probably ever create. And so much is going to be done after me. I'm just looking at my children. Anyone who's a parent can, can identify. Just looking at your children, you're thinking, oh my gosh, these kids are so much smarter and faster and perceptive than I ever was or ever will be. And just let them flow with that and, and encourage them to, to continue that. So if, if you if you take... If you put ego aside, you can accomplish a lot more. And, and you know, we, we talked about this earlier a little bit in the in the sales and marketing alignment context. But for anything in life, as soon as you realize that you don't know everything, you will never know everything. It's it's a it's a fool's errand to try and know everything. So just be very deliberate about how you spend your time and what you want to learn about today or this week. You know, at any given moment, I'm I'm taking my daily language course on Duolingo. I'm taking my my courses on masterclass. I've got an open book or two on my nightstand for something else that I'm reading. And probably like everyone else, I've got 400 tabs open on my browser of things that I, I need to get reading. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so why I'm really interested in as well, because you, you're going to have better access to this data than me. When I was in my franchise, we were always taught, um, you know, your job is to gather information, not to give it. So the emphasis, the overemphasis was on asking questions and gathering information. You're always very protective about the information that you give. I uh, interviewed Brian Glipkowski recently, who I think you know, who does the uh, answer intelligence, the AQ. And that's really looking at the quality of prepared uh, answers, 10 second, 30 second, three minute, 10 minute, half hour, whatever. But there is nothing original under the sun that any of us are ever going to face in terms of objections, pains, or likely pushback. So all of that can be rehearsed. Listening, the silence, and how salespeople use that. And then being able to weave it all together with real empathy. Last one is a big one. Now uh, we, we've, we've seen this in our data, and, and you know there's hundreds of thousands of Gong users, so we have a lot of data on this. But one piece of advice that seems to work brilliantly is embrace the awkward silence. And for those unfamiliar with the term, in sales, one of the most critical places you can do that is after you present pricing, the novice salesperson 
will wait maybe two and a half seconds and then jump in and say, oh, but th that's just the list price. I can give you a discount. And, and if that's too much, I can work on terms. And they just don't even let their customer process that. And that is the perfect point in time to embrace the awkward silence or the awkward pause. If you wait long enough, the customer might actually say, okay, that makes sense and move forward or ask for a much smaller discount than you were prepared to offer or, or give you some other objection that's not even around price. So by doing that in strategic places, you're actually going to gain a lot more. Well, I, I need to pull you up because your data tells us that the average length of time a, sa a salesperson can shut up before they have to fill the silence with the sound of their own voice was 0.7 of a second. Um, so I think you're being wildly generous with 300% more time. I know, I know. I, 0.7 seconds is probably longer than I can shut up. Just, just ask my family. Thank you to all the women co coming into sales who are teaching us yeah, how to shut up. <laughs> really interesting. Okay. So what's the data telling you about the importance of weaving those four things together? So listening, questioning, answering, and empathy. So obviously, they're all, they're all super important. I think we see that some of them become more important in, in different parts of the conversation and of the sales cycle, right? Everyone in sales knows that the, the goal of their first few meetings with a customer is to create that rapport. And you do that by, by showing empathy and, and by shutting up and by actually making the customer feel heard. And, and we've seen direct correlation that the, the more the salesperson talks in that first conversation, the less likely they are to get the second call because the customer wants to be heard on the first call. They don't want to be lectured. They want to be heard. So, uh, of course, there's there's a extreme to, to each direction. You don't want to shut up completely because then you're not probably providing any value. So you do have to present something and, and make sure you, you you present yourself as knowledgeable and, and you put your value proposition out there that you could actually help solve the, the customer's problems. But then as you move on, uh, where the salesperson really gets tested is, can you be a consultant and help me figure out what I need without necessarily putting your best interests first. So a great example is salespeople who will say, you know, you don't need to buy our most expensive package. That's too much for you. We'll look at that next year. Here's what I would recommend you start with now. Something like that, that clearly shows the customer that you're putting their best interest in front of yours. That creates a lot of trust. That creates a lot of trust. Now they know they can trust you because they can see that you're willing to give a part of your commission to make sure that the customer has what they need. And uh, one of the pinnacles of that is, is sometimes you hear a vendor saying, you know, we have a product for what you're looking for. I actually recommend you go to another company and buy theirs for this specific thing because that would better suit your needs. Nothing creates more trust with a customer than a salespeople completely forgoing their commission to send a customer some, somewhere else. Now, obviously, don't do that with your core product or you probably won't last long with your job. But if, if you've got a whole suite of products and there's one little thing that the customer needs and you know that the competitor does it better, it, it might be a good idea to send them there. What seems to have been sacrificed in the last few years for efficiency and for automation and the illusion of control is relationship um, and real engagement. and the illusion of control for the audit functions uh, within the business is not a price worth paying because the overemphasis on short-term pipeline, for example, means that you see so many organizations going into this end of month, end of quarter flurry, and then doing fire sales to try and buy business to bring stuff in. 
And what I'm really interested in is what is the data telling you and how are you aligning marketing sales and CS to take advantage of the medium-term pipeline and in particular expansion sales where the profit is? So, so there, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll, I'll try to attack it from a couple of different angles. Feel free to uh, reel me back in if, if I'm not covering what you wanted for what you wanted here specifically. So one thing I will say, yes, uh, sales organizations, especially ones with more transactional businesses, so short deal cycles, they tend to focus on this month, this quarter. That's kind of as far as the eye can see. And it's up to marketing and and management to focus on the longer term strategy to say, what do we need to do to make sure that we have a pipeline in one, two, three quarters from now? We can't just be looking at the edge of our noses, what's happening this month or this quarter, because we need to, to grow that number for next quarter and beyond. So that's where a great marketing team does things like builds a brand, builds a community, creates content marketing that gets people's mind share months and sometimes years before they're in the buying zone for that company's product. And that's something, as you can imagine, I can talk about for hours. So that's that's sort of one area. The next podcast. Next podcast. There we go. We've already got our next next topic a lot. And then, of course, there are sales teams who sell long enterprise deals. Some deals can take two years in the making, even more. And so you have to keep the mind share of those prospects. If you already have alignment from the business buyer, but now there's a six months IT audit, how do you keep that business buyer engaged so they're still in the zone? And there's many ways of doing that. Again, with marketing's help, providing them with the right content, inviting them to the right events, providing them with the right experience, creating enough delightful moments along the way that they keep that hype and excitement about onboarding with your product or service once IT is done with their torture. So, yeah, sorry, we love IT, but you know what I mean. So these are the, 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 some of the ways that we need to look at different time horizons. Yes, we all want to close the deal now, but some deals are just not going to close now. And the way I like looking at it, and I've, I've done so for many years, is if, if you look at all the prospects out there, there's probably three categories you can bucket them in. One is prospects that for some reason or another will never buy from you. They either just don't like your brand or it's a wrong fit or, or they're just laggards and they're not going to buy this technology in the next five years. You don't have to worry about them because there's little you can do to change them. And then there's the ones that are ready to buy now. Now, those are wonderful and you definitely should, should engage with them to sell to them now, but they'll never typically be more than... 5 to 15% of the market are in the zone to buy your product now. So what do you do with the rest of them? What do you do with the, the 60, 70, 80% that will maybe buy from you sometime? And that's where nurturing comes into, into play. That's where you want to feed them with your content and invite them to your event and send them gifts and keep them in that zone so that in six or nine or 24 months, when they are finally ready to buy your product, the first brand they think of is your brand. And that is the long-term view that I think a lot of early stage companies and definitely salespeople where sometimes they also are responsible for marketing, it's difficult for them to take that long-term view because it's so far beyond the, the time horizon that they typically look at. How am I going to finish this quarter? Or at the best, how am I going to finish this year? How are you finding Gong's information is being used by managers uh, who initially see it as a policing tool rather than a coaching tool, performance improvement tool? 
I will correct one thing about that assumption. Managers, to the best of my knowledge, never looked at Gong as a policing or supervision tool. It is actually sometimes the, the initial gut reaction of the reps who say, oh, no, management is bringing in this tool to police on us and, and check what we're doing. So it's the managers usually know what they're getting into and actually see the potential for this to improve performance and get salespeople to better coach themselves. Because just by listening to your own calls, you become better. And listening to other reps on my team, I become better. And asking for help from my manager, I become better. So the, the managers came in with, with the right state of mind, but it's the reps that sometimes have that early knee-jerk reaction, which is not so positive. And, and here's what we found, Marcus. If, if you go to, to G2 or any review site, you'll see that 80% of the reviews are not from the managers who bought the software. They're from the reps who actually use it and absolutely bonkers love it. And many of them start with almost the same sentence. They said, when management bought this thing, I initially was appalled. I'm like, I don't want people listening to my calls and dissecting every word I'm saying and looking for where I'm, I'm fumbling so they can have an excuse to fire me. But two or three weeks into using Gong, I saw the tremendous value that this is bringing me and how I can use this with my manager to actually improve how I'm managing deals and, and win more business. And so... Initially, this was even a surprise to us because we never intended this to be a policing tool. But when we saw that knee-jerk reaction, we we're like, oh no, this could be a huge derailer. And even some of our early investors that declined investing in Gong, they said, oh no, reps are going to hate this. They're not going to adopt it. It's never going to work. And of course, they're, they're eating their hats now because once the reps see the value to themselves, not for management, they love it. And I think that's one of the, one of the biggest things that is different from, say, a CRM system, because a CRM system typically is put in by management. Management sort of likes the reports and dashboards that they're getting, but the reps never get to that point where they say, I love my CRM. Sorry, but I've never heard a rep say that. Nobody says, I love my CRM because it causes a lot of work for the reps to put in information. They get very little value out of it. And Gong is the exact opposite. They love it because they see all the value that they get and how little work it takes from them because it captures all their information automatically. And so they end up loving it, both the reps and both the managers. That's kind of the, the holy grail of where you want to be if you're putting, a, putting out a system for salespeople. Okay, let's start wrapping up on some really awkward and uncomfortable questions. What are you doing to prepare your management layer for what's to come? We, we are working on different scenarios from, from bleak to, to euphoria. But I think we're, we're very grounded with both the leading and lagging, lagging indicators of what's happening on a weekly basis now. So I think what we're doing is not unique and other companies have done the same, which is going from an annual planning cycle to a quarterly planning cycle to a monthly planning cycle, and in some cases to a weekly planning cycles when things are moving so fast as they are right now. You've just got to have those different scenarios out there, be very prudent about investment and spending, just invest in the right things. For us, it's product innovation because we know that uh, we, we've raised enough money to continue investing the product without interrupting them. We know that we've, we can continue expanding in territories where things are going well, and we might pull back a little bit in areas where the future is less clear right now. Interesting. Okay. And what's currently impossible that if it was possible would be a game changer for you? Oh, gosh. 
At the business level? Yeah. I don't know that anything is impossible. We, we don't have that mindset. Um, we, we like to think big. We like to go big. I don't know that anything is impossible, honestly. Are there any nice, gnarly, wicked problems that just keep recurring that just won't be put to bed? Yes, yes. I think in a business like Gong, you know, our biggest enemy is the status quo. Yes, there are a few, there are a few competitors out there, but our biggest enemy is the status quo. And the number of deals we lose to the status quo outnumbers by an order of magnitude, the number of deals we lose to competition. Okay. And so if, if I could change anything, it's, it's something that we've been working on for a few years now, which is creating that sense of urgency around you need Gong's reality platform now, not in six months, not in 12 months, you need it now. And if I could create even more of that sense of urgency, because thousands of organizations have already seen the light and, and are using Gong, if I could create even more of that sense of urgency and increase our win rates even more, that, that would be amazing. Okay. That's the conversation you and I need to have offline, because I think I may well have the answer. Um, but, oh, gosh. Um, there you go. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's another conversation. Okay. Tell me this then. As you see Gong grow and evolve, one of the big challenges of any big organization that is scaling up, I mean, even a small one, is maintaining the quality of the people that you recruit when you're having to scale at such a pace. How do you do that? And how do you resist the temptation to reduce the standards of your hiring? So, so the simple answer, it's not simple to do, but the simple answer is, if you hire A, A or A-plus people, they will continue to bring A or A-plus people, and they will continue to bring A or A-plus people. As soon as you drop the bar once and you start bringing in a, a, a cohort of B players, they can only hire C players, and that's where things really spiral down. So that is the simple answer to how you do that. And of course, you've got to be very, very dedicated and very, very disciplined to say, I'm willing to wait another three or six or nine months to hire for this strategic role, because if I know if I bring in a B player now, they're going to build a team of C players and I can't afford that. And then of course, there's a million like practical things that are derived from that, but that's the, the high level strategy. So can I just reiterate the point Udi is making here? You never compromise on recruitment. Correct. You, do, you have just Correct. a series of management problems. If, if you go to our website, there, there's our leadership principles. We have 11 leadership principles that are under the, the company menu on gong.io. And one of the 11 principles is never compromise on the talent, never compromise on the talent, which means both when we're recruiting externally and when we're promoting internally, we do not compromise on the quality of talent. And if we make a mistake, which, which happens, it's rare, but it happens, we, we correct it as quickly as we can. Okay, so final point before we wrap up, because I know that we've got to finish on the dot. The internal communication must come through your, uh, your team. And I'm really interested in how you are, you, uh, first of all, are you using Gong to manage the internal conversations and to coach management and leadership on how to improve their performance internally? And what is it that you are seeing shift in terms of the emphasis, the, 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 you know, the pressure, the focus, the short-term fears, and how are you using the insights to help your management layer uh, prepare or, or empower their teams to make decisions, to do the work for themselves and not delegate up? Because that, that I see is going to be a huge problem as things get tougher 
the last thing you want is management being a bottleneck or becoming brittle. So I'm really interested how you're using that to inform managers. So, so there's, there's two relatively simple use cases that we use Gong for internal meetings, but I will say that the, the grander vision that we have a couple of design partners uh, amongst our customers who want us to work with them on is, is a longer term, bigger internal meeting optimization. So we're not, we're not on that path yet. The, the two relatively simple use cases are number one, across the sales teams, of course, we, we record meetings, we record coaching meetings so we can see how managers are coaching their reps and how the directors are coaching the managers and how the VPs are coaching directors, et cetera. So, so those are all available and we can, we can glean insights just like our customers do by, by doing that on the sales team. Outside of the sales team, we tend to record all but the most sensitive meetings. We're even recording interviews and, and other meetings that you can set their privacy settings so not everyone has free access to. And what that allows us to do is to become more efficient in our meeting culture. I think one of the things that are plaguing all of our organizations since we went remote is that we can't just grab someone for two minutes at the water cooler and ask them a question. We now have to schedule a 30-minute meeting with them. And by recording meetings by default, you can actually reduce the number of participants in a meeting because if you know that someone is probably not going to be asked to speak but might want to just know the gist of what happened, you can say, no need to come to this meeting. We're recording it. We'll send you the recording or even specific snippets that we want you to know about. And then you can either zoom through the meeting at like 2x speed or focus on certain keywords and topics that you wanted to listen to. So it really helps optimize the, the, the meeting culture. And does it um, help you to inform the internal comms so that you're uh, able to listen to the worries and concerns and then drive that in terms of your messaging internally? It does. Today, it's mostly in an unstructured way. As I said, we, we have not built the, the external layer of the product beyond salespeople so far. So optimizing for internal meeting and say for HR or management to understand what we could be doing better, we do that in a manual way. To do it in an automated way that uses the full AI and ML capabilities, that might be coming up uh, in a future release. Excellent. Udi, thank you so much. This has been incredibly informative. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn is the best way to get hold of me. There's only one Udi Lettergore on LinkedIn, so I should be pretty easy to find. And uh, of course, if you're still not uh, on board with Gong, I recommend everyone goes to gong.io and uh, check it out for yourself. Excellent. Udi Lettergore, thank you. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Caffey signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who would benefit from it. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And there is a link in the blurb that will give you an opportunity to book a meeting with me if you want to talk about coaching or training. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.